Hello and welcome to SETI Seminars, brought to you by the Ilkley Literature Festival. This podcast series will introduce you to a wide range of topics as leading experts break down years of study into bite-sized talks. From 18th century murder mysteries to modern US history, and from psychiatry to post-colonial literature. So far, we know of only one place in the universe in which life has begun and thrived, and that's Earth. Despite the persistent challenges in detecting extraterrestrial life, there is now a wealth of evidence that rocky planets around other stars are common. Catherine Walsh shares the recipe needed to build a habitable world and discusses state-of-the-art technology that can detect them on other planets. Welcome to this City seminar entitled, How to Build a Habitable World. During this podcast, I will take you on a journey describing the origin of stars and their surrounding planetary systems. I'll first talk you through the basic ingredients needed to build a planetary system, like our own solar system, and those special ingredients that are needed to create life-friendly conditions on planets, at least for life as we know it here on Earth. So where do we start? As we might do for any recipe we are tackling for the first time, we first look at the finished product, one that has been prepared earlier. And the one planet that we know of, which is habitable, and on which life has begun and thrived, is our planet, planet Earth. Let's now consider the properties of our planet that make it a habitable world. First, it is a small rocky planet with a solid surface, which has a size and a mass and just the right amount of gravity for bodies of our size and mass to freely move around. This allows us to manipulate our environment, to exploit resources and build on the surface, and also allows plants to grow, to reach and capture the light from the sun. Highlighting this property of our planet might appear to be a trivial point to make, but planets come in many sizes and forms. Half of the planets in our solar system are gas giant planets. They are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, are between 14 and 320 times the mass of the Earth, and are composed of mainly hydrogen and helium, meaning that they have no solid surface. Of the four rocky planets in our solar system, two, Mercury and Mars, are much lower mass than the Earth, 5 and 10% of the Earth's mass, respectively. So why does they have a rocky surface? They have insufficient gravity to hold on to a substantial atmosphere. Mercury is also so close to the Sun that the surface temperature in the daytime is 430 degrees Celsius, and in the nighttime, it drops to minus 180 degrees Celsius. An atmosphere acts like a blanket for a planet. It gets so cold at night on Mercury because there is no atmosphere or blanket to keep in the heat provided by the sun. Now looking at Mars, this planet is one and a half times further away from the sun than the Earth, so it is much colder, between minus 60 degrees Celsius at the equator and minus 125 degrees Celsius at the poles. But Mars is just about massive enough to hold on to an atmosphere. But its atmosphere is very different to Earth's. Because of its low mass, it has lower gravity. So the surface pressure on Mars is less than 1% that on Earth. 
This is equivalent to an altitude of around 35 kilometers on Earth's atmosphere, which is about three times higher than the highest altitudes reached by passenger planes and four times higher than the peak of Everest. Mars's atmosphere also has a very different composition to Earth's. We have an atmosphere made up of 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1% of trace gases like argon, whereas Mars's atmosphere is 95% carbon dioxide, 3% nitrogen, and 2% of trace gases like argon. Most living things on Earth use oxygen to drive metabolism and produce energy. However, plants can photosynthesize using light, carbon dioxide, and a third very vital ingredient, water. It is this third vital ingredient that Mars is missing. We come back to water as an ingredient for building a habitable world later on in the podcast. So the size and mass of our planet provides enough gravity to hold on to a substantial atmosphere that acts as a blanket of just the right thickness and composition to keep the temperature at the surface between an average of minus 20 degrees Celsius at the poles to a balmy 25 degrees in the equatorial regions. So we have our first two ingredients. We need a rocky planet with a solid surface with a mass that allows it to hold on to a substantial atmosphere. But we do have a second planet in our solar system that also fulfills these criteria, and that is Venus. Venus is about the same size and mass as the Earth, but lies 30% closer to the Sun. Like the Earth, Venus has a substantial or thick atmosphere, but Venus's atmosphere has a very different composition to Earth's. It is 96.5 carbon dioxide, 3.5% nitrogen, with only tiny amounts of other gases, such as sulfur dioxide. Being 30% closer to the Sun, Venus receives twice as much sunlight as Earth. And this is because the amount of light reaching a planet depends on the distance to the star, squared. If a planet is two times closer to a star than another, the starlight reaching that planet will be four times stronger. Being this close to the Sun has had an enormous effect on the conditions at the surface of Venus. Carbon dioxide is a well-known so-called greenhouse gas. It is very efficient at capturing and holding onto heat. This means that the blanket surrounding Venus, that is its atmosphere, is acting as a very efficient thermal insulator, one that traps heat rather than letting it escape. And this has soared the temperature at the surface of Venus to around 470 degrees Celsius in what we call a runaway greenhouse effect. And this temperature is so hot, it can melt lead. Further, the weight of the atmosphere is also greater on Venus than on Earth, because carbon dioxide is around one and a half times heavier than nitrogen, the main gas in Earth's atmosphere. The pressure at the surface of a rocky planet is effectively the weight of the atmosphere that is sitting in a column above a unit area. Because of its heavy atmosphere and high temperature, the surface pressure on Venus is 90 times greater than that on Earth. This is equivalent to the pressure at a depth of around one kilometer beneath the ocean. Of course, we know that the oceans on Earth are abundant with life down to depths much, much greater than this. But this high surface pressure, coupled with a surface temperature high enough to melt lead, means that the surface conditions on Venus are inhospitable to all life as we know it. So we've added to our ingredient list. We need a rocky planet with a substantial atmosphere that is just the right distance away from the star, 
and that has an atmospheric composition that curbs or halts this runaway greenhouse effect. This then keeps the planet's surface at a life-friendly temperature, at least for life as we know it. So it appears at this point that we have everything that we need, but there is one vital ingredient that is missing, that we touched upon when discussing the surface of Mars, and that is liquid water. All life as we know it needs liquid water. It fills cells, helping them to keep their size and shape and maintain their function. It is a key component of cell membranes, which can be thought of as the building blocks of living things. It enables proteins to fold to reveal key binding sites for catalyzing chemical reactions that drive muscle contraction, digestion, communication, and many, many others. And it helps DNA maintain its helical structure needed to ensure that its instructions for replication are correctly encoded and passed on. Without the availability of liquid water at the Earth's surface, life as we know it could not exist. What sets our planet apart from the other rocky planets in the solar system is that we are an ocean world. 71% of the Earth's surface is liquid water, and the oceans contain about 97% of the total water on Earth. Despite these apparently large numbers, water is a scarce resource. Only 0.02% of the Earth's total mass is in the form of liquid water. So why does our planet have liquid water available, whereas other rocky planets in the solar system do not? For liquid water to exist on the surface, a planet with a surface pressure of one atmosphere must have a surface temperature between 0 and 100 degrees Celsius. The average surface temperature of the Earth is about 14 degrees Celsius. It can maintain this temperature because it is neither too close, like Venus, nor too far away, like Mars, from the Sun. But distance is not the only factor. It has an atmospheric composition that currently traps just enough heat, not too much like Venus, not too little like Mars, to maintain this surface temperature and enable liquid water to exist on its surface. So it appears that we now have our full ingredient list. A rocky planet with a substantial atmosphere that is just the right distance away from the star and that has an atmospheric composition that curbs or halts a runaway greenhouse effect, giving it a surface temperature that allows liquid water to be available on its surface. So we have our ingredients, now we need our recipe. We can break the ingredients needed for building a habitable world into some basic building blocks. Dust or rock that is needed to form a solid rocky planet, and volatiles, gas or ice, that are needed to form the atmosphere and hydrosphere. To begin the story of Earth's origin, we need to go back in time to more than 4.6 billion years ago before our Sun existed. What was there before, and what happened to bring our Sun and its planetary system into being? If you look at the night sky on a cloudless night, then what you will likely see is a dark, almost black sky permeated with pinpricks of flickering light from nearby stars. Now, our eyes view the night sky at visible wavelengths, but if your eyes were the size and shape of telescope antennas of the order of 10 meters in size, then they would be able to see light at radio wavelengths and the night sky would look very different. Instead of a black background with sporadic smatterings of stars, the sky would be awash with light, coming not from stars, but from the cold material that sits in between the stars, 
what we call the interstellar medium. The interstellar medium is incredibly tenuous and very cold. There is between only 1 to 10,000 molecules per cubic centimetre, and the temperature is only 10 degrees above absolute zero. Compare that with our atmosphere, in which we have 10 to the power of 19 molecules per cubic centimetre at the surface. That number is so huge it's difficult to comprehend. The difference can be imagined by comparing the number of grains of sand that you can hold in the palm of your hand to the total number of grains of sand on Earth. But the light that you would see with antennas for eyes comes mainly from tiny dust particles floating in the interstellar medium. And there is even fewer of those. There is only one dust particle for every trillion molecules in the interstellar medium. And it is these tiny dust particles that are the building blocks of rocky planets. Some of these interstellar dust grains are made out of exactly the same material as grains of sand that we find on Earth. Silicates, composed of silicon and oxygen, and other heavy elements such as magnesium, iron and aluminium. So where do these interstellar dust grains come from? The Sun is a member of the third generation of stars. It is thought that there existed at least two previous generations of stars between the emergence of the universe and today. As these previous generations of stars came to the end of their lives, they either cooled and expanded and became red giant stars and then white dwarfs, or if massive enough, they exploded as supernova. These early stars can be thought of as nuclear factories that have converted light elements like hydrogen and helium into heavy elements like oxygen, nitrogen, silicon and metals. But what about the dust? When a star is at the end of its life and it is running out of fuel, there exists a sweet spot in its evolution where there are just the right temperature and pressure conditions to fuse these heavy elements into dust grains. You can think of this process as being similar to making dough. The two key components, flour and water, won't mix and fuse unless you mix and apply pressure. These dust grains, along with the important heavy elements like oxygen, are blown out by dying stars to seed the interstellar medium. So we have our dust grains and we have our heavy elements floating and available in the interstellar medium. How do these components come together to form a planetary system? It seems impossible, right? The tools that we will now use in our recipe are gravity and rotation. The densest regions of the interstellar medium, what we call molecular clouds, are massive ensembles of material and can have a mass between about 10 times and 10,000 times the mass of the sun. And these molecular clouds sit on a knife edge. They are very finely balanced by two opposing forces, an internal pressure force acting outwards trying to disperse the cloud, and the force of gravity which is acting inwards, holding the cloud together. A little push one way or the other can lead to either the cloud dispersing or the cloud collapsing under the force of gravity. The push to collapse can come from an external source such as a collision with another cloud or perhaps a shockwave from a nearby supernova. Or given the strong relationship between temperature and pressure, perhaps the cloud has cooled sufficiently that internal pressure can no longer hold back against gravity. In any case, once collapse has started, it is impossible to stop. And this is the first stage in forming a star. A cloud with a mass of around 10 times the mass of the sun will collapse to around one millionth of its original size and will increase in density 
by around 20 orders of magnitude. This process takes about 100,000 years for a sun-like star. But then where do the planets come from? Everything in space is rotating. This is a property called angular momentum and is an echo or leftover from the formation of the universe. Molecular clouds rotate incredibly slowly. It takes around one quadrillion years to complete a full rotation, which is around 100,000 times longer than the age of the universe. One of the properties of angular momentum is that it is conserved, just like mass and energy. The size of an object and its rotation speed are linked through angular momentum. Imagine that you're sitting on an office chair that is spinning. As you reach out with your arms, you will slow down, and as you pull your arms towards your body, you will speed up. In a similar way, when a cloud collapses under gravity to one millionth of its original size, to conserve angular momentum, the object's rotation rate increases by this factor squared, that is by 12 orders of magnitude. And this rotation rate is approaching the speed of light. If angular momentum is not removed or redistributed through the system, the star will effectively spin itself apart. So how do we do this? Imagine you're making a pizza. Once you have your dough mixed and you flattened it, to create the surface area needed for your pizza toppings, the professionals spin the dough in the air, creating a round, thin and flat pizza base. Exactly the same thing happens around a star. Just like the dough is malleable and can spread when it's rotated, the material surrounding a forming star, which is mainly made out of gas, spreads in the same way. And just like the example of the spinning chair, if the material is spread out, the rotation rate will decrease, allowing the star to stabilize and form. And this rotating thin disk of gas and dust formed solely as a consequence of angular momentum conservation during star formation is where our planetary system will form. So where are we on our recipe? We have formed our dust grains and heavy elements through the previous generations of dying stars and we have now formed a star with an orbiting disk by gravitational collapse and angular momentum conservation. Next is the assembly of rocky planets. To build a rocky planet from tiny interstellar dust grains requires us to grow from smaller than the size of a particle of sand, much less than one millimeter, to the size of a planet, around 12,500 kilometers. The process starts with simple collisions. The tiny particles are coupled to gas, which is turbulent, much like the turbulence we meet in our atmosphere and passenger aircraft when flying. This stirs the material in the disk, helping the tiny dust grains to meet and to collide and stick together. But why do they stick? The dust grains are not bare, but can be coated in a sticky organic goo similar to tar. This forms on the surface through the accretion from the gas of carbon-rich material that is bombarded with radiation from the star that then cooks that layer, creating this sticky goo. If the dust grains are far enough away from the star to be colder than about 100 degrees above absolute zero, then ices, mainly water ice, can also coat the dust grains, making them sticky. You will see the same effect if you're making buns like Rice Krispie buns. The Rice Crisps will not stick together unless you add chocolate or marshmallow or another sticky substance. This growth through collisions occurs until the particles reach the size of pebbles. Then they are too big to be stirred by turbulence and gravity then begins to take over their evolution. The pebbles settle into a thin layer in the equatorial region of the disk and continue to collide. But collisions now no longer lead to growth. The pebbles bounce off each other instead. 
And this is one of the most active areas in planet formation research today, how to overcome this so-called bouncing barrier. One theory that seems to work is that some of the pebbles break apart and transfer mass to another pebble, helping some lucky pebbles to grow to planetesimal sizes of the order of a few kilometers. Another theory that also works states that instabilities and pressure peaks in the gas allow the pebbles to collect at high concentrations and then gravity takes over and this pebble cloud collapses under gravity to form a planetesimal. Regardless of the process, once we have our planetesimals, gravity is the sole tool in our toolbox. These kilometre-sized planetesimals continue to collide and grow over time scales of a few hundred million years until effectively the supply runs out and our young planetary system is born. So the need for these energetic collisions of large bodies to form rocky planets. The Earth's formation was a very violent process. And that means that the young Earth would have looked very different to the planet that we live on today. When the Earth was young, its surface was molten rock and the organic matter and other volatile material like oxygen and nitrogen would have boiled away to space. So how did the Earth become the ocean world as we see it today? One theory is that early in the evolution of the solar system, leftovers in the form of rocky asteroids and icy comets were flung into the inner solar system through gravitational pushes from the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn. Once the Earth's surface cooled and solidified, these bombardments replenished the surface with organic carbon-rich matter needed to seed life and water needed then to form the hydrosphere. And we can still see clear evidence of this period of bombardment in the cratering that is visible on the moon. So it appears that we have our final ingredient and also final step in our recipe. It is not enough that we have a rocky planet with a substantial atmosphere that is just the right distance away from the star with an atmospheric composition that keeps it at just the right temperature for liquid water to exist on the surface. It is also likely that we need this process of replenishment through bombardment to deliver those key ingredients needed for life to begin on a habitable world. Everything that we have discussed so far has been very much influenced by what we know about the limits of life on Earth. The search for evidence of life beyond Earth continues in several different ways, from exploration of the solar system, in particular Mars, on which we have landed several rovers searching for signs of current or extinct life, through to blind searches for techno-signatures arising from advanced alien civilizations. So far, despite our efforts, it appears we are alone. But we should not underestimate the difficulties of these endeavours. Space is truly vast, and we have explored a minuscule fraction of it. We ourselves have only been broadcasting radio waves for around 100 years, so we are also very difficult to spot by others. Another line of inquiry needs to consider that conditions on Earth are not the only set of conditions to lead to life. We know that life likely needs liquid water, given its special properties in being a universal solvent and providing a framework around which molecules can form structures like cell walls. So the quest for extraterrestrial life can also be thought of as the quest for water. So what do we know? We know that out of all the rocky planets, only Earth has liquid water on the surface. But there has been recent evidence that liquid water, albeit very salty water, flows on Mars. These are very tiny quantities relative to what our planet has, but it is there. And it tells us that Mars may have had life in the past, or there could be still life present under the surface. 
And this is why Mars continues to be a key target for in-situ exploration, with current and future missions dedicated to subsurface studies. What about beyond the rocky planets? The gas giants Jupiter and Saturn both have multiple icy moons. Two in particular, Europa around Jupiter and Enceladus around Saturn, both have cracked icy surfaces from where water vapour has been seen to be escaping to space. And this is evidence that both of these moons likely have subsurface oceans, they have liquid water, and they also have a solid surface. But what they don't have beneath the surface is sunlight. However, we do know that life on Earth can exist to huge depths in the oceans where sunlight doesn't penetrate, so we should consider that the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn are potential sites for life. What about beyond the solar system? This seems perhaps the most challenging and hopeless, but in the past 25 years, astronomers have discovered more than 4,700 planets orbiting stars other than the Sun. The vast majority of these planets are smaller than Neptune, and many of them, around 300 or so, have a mass and a size and thus a density very similar to the Earth. However, many of these rocky planets orbit their star much closer in relative terms than the Earth orbits the Sun. This means that they are likely to be much warmer, and thus their surface temperatures too high for liquid water to exist. However, of these 300 or so Earth-mass planets, 24 of them do orbit their stars in this sweet spot. And these planets are prime targets for future telescopes that will probe the compositions of their atmospheres and look for the presence of water vapour that may signify a hydrosphere. These measurements will be made in our lifetime. Later this year, we launch Webb, the next generation spaceborne telescope that is primed for looking at the atmospheres of these extrasolar planets. In 2025, we see the commencement of operations of the extremely large telescope, the ELT, currently under construction in Chile. And there are multiple future plans to launch space missions dedicated to the search and probing of other Earths in the 2020s and 2030s. So this is really exciting time to be alive. It is highly possible that in the next 10 to 30 years, we find another Earth. Thank you for joining this SETI seminar. We hope you've enjoyed listening. If you would like to learn more about this and other topics in the series, then reading lists are available in the episode description of your podcast app. Or you can check out our website, which is ilkleylipfest.org.uk. Until next time, don't forget to like, rate and subscribe.